I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Morgan Stanley. Today is Friday, April 23rd. Gasoline prices are up, Bitcoin prices are down, and we're focused on what came out of President Biden's climate summit. This afternoon marks the end of the White House's two-day virtual climate summit, attended by over 40 world leaders. It's Biden's effort to reassert U.S. authority and credibility on climate after four years of antipathy from the prior administration. It also seems to have an inward-facing domestic purpose, with Biden believing that if the rest of the world takes our word that we're again serious about climate, then Congress won't have much choice but to follow through by passing that giant infrastructure package, chock full of green goodies like electric vehicle charging stations. Axios climate reporter Andrew Friedman has been watching the summit and speaking with participants, including Norway's prime minister, in an interview we'll bring you shortly. But first, I wanted to ask him to break down some of what came out of the summit and if it aligned with Biden's goals. So, Andrew, what were Biden's goals for the summit? Biden's goals were partly to reestablish or begin to reestablish U.S. leadership on climate change. Another goal is to encourage other countries to step up with bigger emissions reduction commitments by 2030. And to that extent, they did get some goals from Japan, Canada, and South Korea. There were other sort of cooperative goals with India that were announced and some fuzzy stuff with China, but there were no other major goals announced. Does this sort of summit really matter or do world leaders just kind of roll their eyes knowing that whatever Biden says, the whole thing could be shifted in four years? So my colleague Sarah Muha and I actually asked the Norwegian prime minister that question because it goes back even further. The Paris Agreement was the second climate agreement the U.S. has negotiated and then left, the first being the Kyoto Protocol. Why would anybody trust the United States at this point, really? And part of the answer, and this was evident in what Biden said, and this was evident in what the Norwegian prime minister said, is they try to look not just at Washington, but what the United States is doing and look at corporations and look at states and local leaders. And everything has been marching in the direction of decarbonization and action, even though Washington kind of uh, has had a windshield wiper effect. So does that mean that President Biden calls a climate summit, but President Biden, and and by which I mean kind of the broader White House and and D.C. establishment, doesn't actually really matter? It means that the D.C. establishment is trying to harness the power, really catalyze the power of the private sector and really get them going faster. But if you think about it, yeah, they need incentives. They need tax incentives. They need regulations. They want to work through Congress, but they never talked about Congress at this meeting. They kind of made it seem as if, you know, they're leading the charge, but ultimately the White House maybe doesn't matter quite as much as we think it does. And they're not the linchpin of this necessarily. And they're not viewed by world leaders necessarily as the linchpin. What actually is a meeting of more than 40 world leaders, including Vladimir Putin and the Pope via Zoom, actually like? You know, some of it was cringeworthy of uh, leaders on mute. Some of it had some terrible audio feedback issues. However, it was actually pretty impressive how seamless things were and how the administration used 
every single cabinet member, pretty much, from the trade negotiators to uh, the defense secretary and the director of national intelligence, all participated in this at some point. Bottom line, was this climate summit successful in terms of Biden's goals for it that you laid out earlier? Yes, in terms of saying we're back. No, in terms of getting concrete, very ambitious targets from multiple other countries that need to do them. Canada's target is viewed as uh, relatively disappointing. South Korea only said we're going to stop funding international coal plants, but not domestically. China didn't really step up to the plate. Other people are hedging their bets. And uh, the United States is going to exert more pressure up to the next UN climate talks in November. In 15 seconds, we will bring you Andrew and Sarah Muha's interview with Norway's prime minister. Here are some portions of my interview with my colleague Sarah Muha. You'll hear her on this tape. This is a question about U.S. credibility. Um, You experienced four years in which the United States moved away from the Paris Agreement, took a number of steps domestically to march in the wrong direction uh, if you're interested in carbon emission reductions. How much credibility does the United States bring to the table now? Do we really get it back just by holding one summit? I think we need to see good policies. I think for us, it's extremely important to separate the U.S. from any U.S. administration. Because what we really have seen is that the emissions went down, even though the president was not in favor of the Paris Agreement. Because uh, the U.S. has innovative companies, states that are putting stronger measures in place. I mean, there's a lot of things going on in the U.S. So I think it's important for us that we have always seen, especially the innovative force in the U.S., as strong for implementing new policies, but also uh, new technologies. And, and of course, seeing that change. What we really need is to see that it functions. Uh, I am very happy to see here new and stronger targets. Uh, from the administration. I think the fact that the U.S. now has delivered on stronger targets into the Paris Agreement has also had its effect on other countries. We heard Japan this today increasing their uh, targets, and we see other countries coming. In February last year, there was this time limit for when you were supposed to report after the Paris Agreement on, on your increased uh, targets. And Norway was the only Western country that did that at that time. EU came before Christmas, but they came. What really happens when the U.S. starts to, a lot of other countries feel the pressure and are starting to deliver. So we have to make sure that more countries are increasing their their ambitions. And that's, I think, is the symbolic thing with the U.S. back, is that they are putting, pushing other countries to also deliver. The comment that you made of separating the United States from its administrations, does that mean that you believe that that business and corporations in the United States play a more important role than the president does? Uh, No, but I mean, when it comes to emissions, 
CO2, I think it plays a more important role. I think uh, the solutions to to greenhouse gas emissions is, in fact, it's about technology, it's about development, it's about investment profiles into to making sure that we can change our um, our way of producing goods. Uh, in the future. And I think that innovative power of, of business and what I would say for a large extent of modern business leaders, they are seeing that the moral right issues in this is also becoming much and more the economic sound decisions to make. To emphasize, even in my country, I don't, I still believe that we as politicians have a lot to say. And of course, we have a large sovereign fund and we are investors in the world. But, but I also believe that uh, it's it's also business that will create a lot of the solutions, and when you have a multi-layered society like the, like the U.S., you get an administration that is not focused on CO two emissions and don't want to be part of the international world. You still will see other parts of what I would say economic power structures that are functioning and have a different different agenda. Do you have any concerns personally that any? commitments that you might get from the president or, of course, the vice president who you've been speaking to, uh, that there could be an expiration date on that. And how do you plan for it, given that, you know, we might have a new president and a new administration in four years? Well, then we will always start by talking to the next administration. I, I believe that uh, I, I we are not naive. I think, uh, of course, Europe has to tender for more of its uh, security uh, and pay for it more in the future. Countries like uh, the European ones should should use more on their military expenditure and others. But is this uh, for Norway as a maritime nation? I think uh, U.S. is the only really big security guarantee we can have. And and of course we will talk to any administration that comes. And I believe it's in the self-interest also of the U.S in the future to to have that type of agreements, to fulfill liberal democracies. We have the same uh, probably view in the world on, on, on a lot of things. And we should also work on security together. And do you view climate and climate agreements in the same way? I think climate agreements are more difficult because fulfilling climate agreements is costly in every country these days. So being being a free rider in this system is always tempting for countries, hoping that other countries will do the investments that leads to uh, emission stops or pay for the large new technology development. We are, for example, using a heavy investment through our budget on a large CCS project where we can capture CO2 from a cement production and we are storing it in the seabed in the North Sea. We are sure that this is a safe technology. This could be a technology in the future that a lot of countries can do. And, I, and, and of course, we are doing this because uh, it's a broad uh, agreement that this could be an industrial adventure for us also, but it uh, costs taxpayers money to do it. That's the challenge is that somebody has to lean forward and do and push for this to, to bring the new technology to a more commercial stage. Germany did that on wind power. They have paid a lot to move wind power towards where the wind power is today. That's the dilemma with climate change. How do you do it? It's easy to be a free, ride, a free rider in these types of systems. Watching the United States 
for the last four years. Can you talk a little bit about how our participation in summits and conferences looked? Did it feel like maybe there was less enthusiasm? Did it feel like the United States wasn't itself? Well, I think if you look at security uh, issues, I think the U.S. was present, very present uh, in all of the NATO discussions and and all of these things. But of course, we felt the lack of leadership from the U.S. in uh, multilateral organizations outside defense issues. On uh, a World Trade Organization, which we need more uh, good guidelines and rules and regulations on, on the Paris Agreement. Of course, there are some areas, especially when it comes to family planning, um, all of these issues where Norway has, uh, together with all the Nordic countries and together with former uh, U.S. administrations, have had different view. So we, we felt that we were losing, uh, we felt the need for more American leadership and presence uh, in, in those organizations. But they were there on the security issues. Uh, defense and security, I think they were quite strong on, in fact. So with President Biden's new infrastructure plans for full infrastructure, and, and then there is that family aspect, are countries like Norway looking at the U.S. in how we're kind of getting our own house in order, so to speak? Well, I think the biggest challenge we have seen in the U.S. from the outside is how divided the country is and the economic differences, which leads to more people being having less trust in governments. The fabric of the society becomes uh, less strong. And of course, that's not the last four years. It's been building up for a long, long time. Uh, and then, of course, I think um, if you come from Norway or other European countries, we are a bit f- fascinated about how lousy your infrastructure have become, some places. So that there is a need for a big infrastructure program, yes. Still, there is a challenge on on uh, budget deficits, I think, in the, in the future. But, I mean, uh, uh, that there is a strong need for infrastructure investment, yes. It creates jobs. It's good to move out of the pandemic by, by building yourself out of it, by, by making more uh, better infrastructure. And the fact that there are some states uh, where you have blackouts because your electricity system doesn't function. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not the U.S. I grew up with, to be honest. That's a powerful closing thought from the prime minister. Uh, we're back. Andrew Freeman, how did you read that comment? I thought it was pretty jarring. I... Also thought it was pretty much a, a really good summary of how the European countries are looking at us and looked at us for four years and looked at us in the wake of those four years. Andrew Freeman, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. What we're watching today are taxes on the rich. President Biden is soon expected to propose a near doubling of the tax that wealthy Americans pay on capital gains from 20 percent to over 39%. This would be part of his second infrastructure package, the one primarily focused on social services and in keeping with his campaign pledge to make the rich pay what Biden and many Democrats call their fair share. But there's a lot more we don't know right now than what we do know. And the biggest unknown is if this higher tax would be retroactive, meaning that it would apply to this year's investment income, or if it would kick in for next year. And yes, we've asked White House sources on that, but to no avail. If it doesn't apply until 2022, expect lots of wealthy investors and investment firms 
to go on a selling spree in December, which could have some trickle-down volatility impact on the broader economy. If it is retroactive, well, then lots of this year's giant stock market gains and Bitcoin gains are headed to the IRS to help fund new spending efforts. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Sangani, and Alex Sugiara. Please be sure to leave us a review. And if you aren't following us or subscribing to this podcast, please rectify that. Have a great national picnic day. And we'll be back on Monday with another Axios Recap. <laughs>